Join us for VBS as kids study Psalm 25-4 and discover that God helps us know His ways and teaches us His paths. As kids play their way through the week, they'll learn that Jesus guides them through all the twists and turns of their lives. It's going to be a next-level VBS, but it won't be possible without you. From worship rally to snack and recreation, volunteers like you make the difference. We need you to make twists and turns happen. Find out how to become part of the biggest week in a kid's life and teach them that even when they mess up, it's never game over. Well, good morning. Uh, we are actually having a VBS recruitment lunch today, immediately following the service, and um, it's a free hot dog, and or dogs, you know, plural, if you're like me. Uh, come to the core immediately following our worship service and see how you can be plugged in to VBS this year. Uh, VBS is going to be June 26th through the 29th in the evening. Uh, we would love for you to help. That is one of the biggest evangelistic tools that churches have. So we look forward to your involvement. So just come to the core, enjoy a hot dog, and then learn of some ways that you can be involved. Um, well, anyway, uh, welcome to this morning's worship service. Uh, I wanted to say uh, first uh, a big thank you uh, for your prayers and support. Uh, our mission team got in last Sunday. We had an incredible um, nine-ish nine days in Malawi. Uh, we saw lots of people come to faith in Christ. We had tons of kids at VBS. We look forward to sharing with you bits and pieces uh, throughout. Next Sunday is a youth Sunday. We'll probably have a couple testimonies next Sunday in regards to our mission trip. And then we have a missions moment coming up in May that we'll be able to share some more too. But thank you so much for your prayers, for giving, playing the golf tournament, doing crafts beforehand. Uh, you guys had a hand in what the Lord did in Malawi that week, and we are just eternally grateful for that. And, and rumor has it that uh, I, I preached an hour and a half on Easter Sunday morning. Uh, I think Pastor Scott shared that with y'all, maybe hour and 20 minutes, that right? But he probably didn't tell you that I had to use an interpreter that automatically doubles it. And I will say, I only had one interpreter um, and, and he was still ready to go. If Pastor Scott was preaching, he would have worn two or three interpreters out. <laughs> oh my goodness. But anyway, um, we are glad that you are here to worship with us this morning. And if you're visiting, uh, I would like for you to take a care card that's in the pew back in front of you and um, fill that information out. And you can put these in the giving boxes that are on the back wall of the lobby of the sanctuary there, or you can hand it to, to one of the staff members. On the flip side of that is a place for anyone to uh, fill out a prayer request. We would love to know of, of how we can pray for you. So make sure that you're taking care of that. Um, we've got lots of things happening and going on in the life of our church. Sunday, May 14th is our family dedication day. Um, and parents who wish to participate in this dedication need to attend the class that is the week before on May the 7th at 9 a.m. in the kids' worship room. 
Um, to be included in this class, uh, you need to fill out the appropriate forms and you can pick up those forms at the welcome desk and they need to be filled out by April 30th. Um, and if uh, you have any questions about this, please contact Amanda Christian. Um, ladies, don't forget your event's coming up around the corner, May 4th. Um, and this is for all ladies ages three and up. Uh, the event is called Complete Joy and it will include delicious finger foods, some punch, and some assorted teas. Also, there's going to be a step-by-step -step, uh, canvas painting experience that will be led by a local art instructor, uh, Kelly Stout. So, ladies, I know that you will want to go ahead and make your preparations uh, to be at that event. Uh, you can get more information at the welcome desk. Um, Senior Adult Sunday is around the corner on May the 7th. All senior Adults are uh, invited to attend. There's no fee for the meal, but it is a ticketed event. So if you plan on attending the meal uh, on May the 7th, senior adults, uh, please go by the welcome desk and get your ticket so we can plan accordingly. Uh, this year's uh, women's growth groups uh, will again meet twice a month, beginning in May and running through October. Uh, the cost is $10. Uh, and the theme is identity theft, um, pro reclaiming the truth of who you are in Christ. Registration forms are available now through May the 7th, and again, those are at the welcome desk. We have food roundup going on. Uh, there's bins in uh, both lobbies, sanctuary and core, so make sure that you're getting those, that food in for the food roundup. Today is also the last day to sign up for the family campout. Uh, the family camp out is going to be April 28th and 29th at TN Spencer Park. The cost is $8. Uh, sign up for that at the welcome desk. And Amanda Christian also wanted me to announce that today is the last day for Centra Kid sign up. So parents, if you want your third through fifth grade kid to go to that, please see her and take care of that today. Uh, I know there's other uh, announcements that come to you guys via email. And so please make sure that you're paying attention to those emails and keeping up with the announcements. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it's good to be in this place today to gather with like-minded folk um, who share a common bond in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. God, it's good to worship you. You inhabit the praise of your people and God, I pray that our worship today is done in, in spirit and in truth. God, I pray that the, the words that we sing are, and, and say and preach and pray are actually the reflections of our heart that has been changed for eternity's sake by the gospel of the Lord Jesus. God, I pray that uh, if there's anyone here this morning um, within the sound of my voice that does not have a relationship with you, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit waking them uh, awaken them to their need for you. God, I pray that you convict them of their sin and let them turn their eyes upon the Lord Jesus and his, his life that was sacrificed for us on the cross of Calvary. God, we thank you that uh, even just a couple of weeks ago, uh, we celebrated the very fact um, that uh, the good news of the gospel does not end at the cross, but at the resurrection. God, we thank you that through the resurrection, Lord, you conquered death sin and the grave and father you gave us the great promise before you ascended into heaven that you would come again 
and receive your people into yourself. Lord, may we be preparing for that day. Lord, I pray that uh, you would bless our pastor uh, with the words to say. God, I pray that you would use him to speak to our hearts this morning. God, we love you, and we thank you for loving us first. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you hear from God's word, 1 Peter chapter 1. All praise to God, the Father of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you have to endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Amen. Would you stand as we proclaim together and worship our Savior? Sing to Him this morning. My Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there is none like You. All of my days, I want to pray. Oh, uh-huh. 
Sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. 
and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. You poured out the water, raised up the mountains, imagined the heavens. I can't even fathom how good you are. How good you are. With one single motion, you wrote every bird song, you watched my emotions. I can't even fathom how good you are. 
Amen. Thank you, choir. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 11, if you would please. You know, I don't think Kevin Knight's got the memo. People have been saying lately, Pastor Scott, you've been closing out by like 1120. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not going to do that this morning, though. The 10 minutes I left on the table last week, I'll probably reclaim today, okay? Uh, we're going to look this morning at the subject matter, faith, forgiveness, and other lessons. Faith, forgiveness, and other lessons. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word, please? We'll pick up reading in verse 20. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple... The chief priest and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, 
This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Father, I pray today that you would open our ears that we may hear. And open our eyes that we may see. Lord, help us to understand what it is you desire in your people. God, may we live accordingly because your spirit dwells in us. God, where we are weak, help us. Lord, help us not to lean upon our own understanding or our own wisdom, but to lean wholeheartedly upon you, trusting you in all things. Lord, I pray that our lives would be the witness that people would see us and see the reality of you in us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. B.B. McKinney was a famous hymn writer, wrote some of the hymns in our Baptist hymnal. No doubt the hymn that probably comes to your mind, that's one of B.B. McKinney's, is the hymn, Have Faith in God. Listen to some of the stanzas of that hymn. Uh, B.B. McKinney writes, Have faith in God when your pathway is lonely. He sees and knows the way you have trod. Never alone or the least of his children. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Have faith in God when your prayers are unanswered. Your earnest plea he will never forget. Wait on the Lord. Trust his word and be patient. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Have faith in God though all else fail about you. Have faith in God. He provides for his own. He cannot fail. Though all kingdoms shall perish, he rules and reigns upon his throne. Have faith in God. He's on his throne. Have faith in God. He watches over his own. He cannot fail. He must prevail. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Folks, what a great hymn that is. Amen? And it really says to us what the scripture proclaims. Believers are to have faith in God. We are to trust Him with every fiber of our being. We are to walk by faith. We are to pray by faith. Everything we do, we are to live lives of faith. And we are to believe that God will do everything that He says in His Word that He will do. And we are going to see that this morning. 
But I do think before we come to that particular lesson, it would benefit us a great deal to tie this in with what we looked at last week. You see, all of these events in this section of Mark tie together. They are like beads on a necklace. All of these episodes have to do with Jesus' response and reaction to the religious leaders and their opposition to him. And so every story that he is telling here has to do with that. And it has to do with how they have led in the the temple practice that was going on in that day. And so in other words, all of these episodes are not independent of one another. And so I think it would help us to kind of tie everything together, do a little bit of review from last week, especially for those who weren't here. Last week, you'll recall, we saw in verse 12, if you go back to verse 12, we saw that Jesus was hungry. And then in verse 12 and following, it says, On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. This was... This was a judgment of Jesus, a rejection of Jesus toward Israel, especially Israel's leadership. They had failed to lead the nation to be a light to the other nations. They had turned what was supposed to be a very lively and vibrant faith, they had turned it into nothing but outward ritual, and they had made it a burdensome set of rules and laws. And so these verses serve as a reminder to disciples of Christ even today that we've got to live lives of fruitfulness. We've got to carry out God's intended purposes for our lives. And if we fail to do so, it will bring the judgment of God. Last week, we saw, first of all, that barrenness is cursed. And I told you how this story of the fig tree is meant to be an object lesson. Again, an object lesson against Israel and her leaders. Jesus sees the fig tree in the distance. It's covered in leaves. And what's important to understand is that once a fig tree in this part of the world comes into leaf, it will already have young figs on it. Now, they have not matured yet. They have not ripened, but they're still edible. Fig trees would put on leaves from February through April. Passover was in April, and so this is probably early April. And as Jesus approaches this tree, it's barren. There are no figs. The leaves have given the appearance from a distance that the fig tree would have had these young figs on it even if they weren't ripened yet but there was no fruit again this was a picture of Israel 
Israel and the whole system of Judaism that had developed after the Babylonian exile and then between the two testaments gave the appearance of life and vitality but it was nothing more than a system of laws and regulations. And I tried to tell you last week, do not equate first century Judaism that we see in the New Testament with the Hebrew faith of Israel when they first went into the promised land. I'm of the opinion that if you could have dropped Moses or Joshua down into Jesus' world in first century Israel, Moses and Joshua, neither one would have probably recognized what the Jewish leaders had turned the Hebrew faith into. And over and over again, Jesus condemned the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees. Because here were a people who were giving an outward visible appearance of great spirituality and devotion to God. But on close inspection, they were hypocrites. Jesus said they were whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. And as such, they had no message to preach to the nations. Jesus even told them on one occasion that they would travel lands and seas to make one convert and when they would made that one convert they would make him twice the son of hell that they were. Now what we see here is that Jesus is cursing dead religion. Religion that does not bear fruit. Because what is it that gives evidence of genuine discipleship? It is fruitfulness. And folks, these words are strong warnings to us today. We can go to church and look great on the outside. We can look wonderful on the outside. But we've got to ask ourselves, has our life been changed? Are we a new creation in Christ? And do we bear the fruit of the Spirit? Because we need to understand this is what God is looking for. They were so proud of their temple. People today can be proud of their churches. But again, we've got to stop and ask ourselves, is there spiritual life that bears fruit? Is that what our lives are about? Because sadly a lot of people in churches today perhaps are nothing more than fig trees with pretty leaves but no fruit. Well then we moved on last week to saw how worldliness was cursed. It says in verse 15, they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Again, we need to understand what's going on here. People would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover every year in the spring of the year. It was one of the main feasts that every Jew was supposed to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. It's said that the population around Jerusalem would swell to about ten times its normal size. And a lot of these pilgrims have come from far distances. And some of them would bring the needed sacrifices with them. They might get there and the priest might give a ruling that that animal 
was not without defect. And so they would, they would have brought that animal for nothing. Even if the animal was okay, still they would have had to travel with it for great distances. And so uh, the religious establishment under the direction of the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin had, had started a business there on the outer temple grounds. They offered animals for sale. Sometimes with a markup as much as 16 times what that animal should have cost. But it was sold as kind of a thing of convenience. You know, just wait till you get here and buy this animal. And if you buy one of our animals, it's been approved by all of the priests. So you'll know that it's without defect. And so, hey, they've made a big business out of this. And then there's the money changers. Because a lot of these people coming in would have coinage from regions that would have images of pagan religions on them and they couldn't use that and so they would have to exchange the money and again there was an exorbitant fee for doing that Jesus was infuriated when he saw all of this and then on top of that they've turned the outer uh, courtyard of the temple about 35 acres they've turned it into this marketplace and the outer courtyard was the only place that Gentiles non-Jews could go to worship there were many God-fearing Gentiles at this time who had turned to Israel's God, they likewise would go up to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. All they could do, though, was go into the outer courtyard. They couldn't go into the temple itself. But once they got there and went into the outer courtyard where they could worship Israel's God, they couldn't because it was this chaotic, loud marketplace. And so what's Jesus do? He drives them all out. And the word that is used here is a very forceful word. It's the same word that is oftentimes used of Jesus driving demons out of people. He drives these money changers out of the courtyard and these people selling these animal sacrifices. I mentioned to you last week how this is not simply the cleansing of the temple but the rejection of the temple. Jesus would go on to say that the temple would be completely destroyed which it was in 70 AD but he also said tear down this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Folks, the temple is now Jesus and those who are in Jesus. Meaning that the Jerusalem temple that was destroyed in 70 AD by, by the Romans no longer has any purpose whatsoever in the redemptive plan of God. Jesus and those in him constitute the new temple and that's important to see because that's what the entire book of Hebrews is trying to tell us. Things of the old covenant, like the old covenant sacrifices, the old covenant high priest, the old covenant temple, all of those things are now uh, obsolete because Jesus has fulfilled all of that. 
And you know what? That means that Christians today don't even need to get caught up in worrying about are they going to build a future temple where the Dome of the Rock uh, now stands. Even if a future temple were to be built and new sacrifices instituted like some people are looking for, it would have zero purpose in the redemptive flow of history. Because again, Jesus has fulfilled all of that and God's not not going to throw things in reverse Christ has fulfilled all that don't diminish what God has now done in Christ now again that catches up those who weren't with us last week let's with that table set let's move on beginning in verse 20 building on other principles that Jesus is laying down here and he he mentions here that disciples are to have faith it says as they passed by in the morning they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots and Peter remembered and said to him rabbi look the fig tree that you cursed has withered And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses disciples are to have faith remember what the writer of Hebrews told us about this in Hebrews 11 it says now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Folks, disciples of Jesus have to have faith. We have to live by faith. Now, what is it that has provoked this teaching by the Lord? It's when they pass by the fig tree uh, the, next, the next morning. And they see that the fig tree has withered away, not just withered away, but it's, it's withered away from its roots. It's completely withered. Symbolizing, again, the, the, the old covenant now is gone. In Jesus, he's fulfilled it all. A- after Jesus' first advent and what he's going to do on the cross, that fig tree symbolizing Israel 
is, is withered. And, and, and Peter seems astounded by all of this. And he calls attention to this tree as though it should be a surprise. And Jesus gives an illustration of hyperbole. Jesus is not saying we can go around and change the earth's topography. You know, one of us saying, hey, I, I want a mountain here. I want this mountain removed. And boom, that mountain's gone. Or here's a mountain. Or here's a beach. Or here's an ocean. Could you imagine if everybody did that? Don't turn this into that sort of thing. Because some Christian groups use passages like this to promote a name it and claim it theology. And if it were meant to be that sort of thing, then God's people would never have to get sick. We would never have to experience trials. We would never get diseases. We would never die. And on top of that, we'd be multimillionaires. Well, what are mountains? They're hurdles. You have to go over them or around them. Of course, today we even dig through them. But a mountain's got to be dealt with. It's there and it's big. Do you have anything like that in your life this morning? Could it be some mountain with a child or your marriage? Could it be something like that? You need to pray, and as you pray, you need to have faith. As the writer of Hebrews says, you've got to believe in God that he's there and he's a rewarder of those who seek him. If you don't think God is there and don't think he's big enough, you won't go to him in the first place. And that's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking. Now listen, God's word plainly reveals to us that not every prayer we pray is going to be answered exactly the way we want it to be. And yet the Bible still commands us to pray. There's a mystery there that we've got to be satisfied to live with. Realize many prayers may be answered exactly the way you want. Some may not be. God may say no to others. But we still need to pray. Some people say, well, if I'm not going to get everything the way I want it, I just won't pray. Well, you'll be the loser then. In the book of James, James says, you don't have because you don't ask. And then James went on to say, other times you ask amiss that you may consume what you get upon your lust. You look at some of your prayers and probably some of them are centered all around you. Me, me, me. God, give me this. Me, me. Make this happen for me. Very selfish. Folks, our prayers need to be God-centered. We need to focus on His will, His agenda, His glory. And assuming we're doing that and praying according to the will of God, John tells us in 1 John 5, this is the confidence that we have. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, then we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Again, if we ask anything according to his will. Folks, that ought to be motivation to pray, and it ought to be motivation to pray biblically. 
And look at the life of Jesus, the way he prayed. He constantly prayed. And he told us to pray, to ask, to seek him, and to ask in faith. Again, sometimes he may say no, that's still an answer. Sometimes he may say not yet because it's not in his timing, that's an answer. He may say yes, but a little bit differently than you think. That's an answer. Paul wanted his thorn in the flesh removed. And God said, no, I'm going to leave it there, Paul. Because through me leaving your thorn in the flesh, you're going to learn dependence on me. And that my grace is sufficient for you. But the point is in the Bible, God tells us. He hears our prayers. And he answers If you don't sense answers to your prayer, you need to examine how you're praying or there may be sin in your life that's getting in the way. Because in Isaiah 59, uh, the scripture points out, is God's ear so dull that he can't hear what you're asking? Or his eyes so blind that he can't see? Or his arms so short that he can't? Reach forth and answer that prayer. But as Isaiah says in Isaiah 59, no, the problem is your sin. You don't see answers to your prayer because of a life of sin that you've not repented of and dealt with. But folks, assuming we deal with all that, we're to pray. And what's going to inspire us and motivate us to do that? Because we're a people of faith. You know, we might say, you know what? We, we live in a fallen world where things just keep getting worse. What's the point? That's not faith. Jesus told us we are to pray. It makes a difference in your life and in my life. And what God does in the world. We are to pray. And we're to have faith as we pray. Disciples are to be men and women of faith. Well a fourth principle here he lays out. uh, Disciples are also to forgive. Jesus said in verse 25. Whenever you stand praying forgive. If you have anything against anyone. So that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Folks there's an astounding principle here we need to learn. If we can't forgive other people. Then why in the world should we expect God to forgive us? We're told in several places in the New Testament that how we treat other people will serve as a basis of how God will treat us. Our prayers or the effectiveness of our prayers can be hindered because of things that are not right in our relationships with others. I think of what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3 when he's talking about the role of husband and wife. And he's talking there about husbands at one point and and he's saying if you're not right with your wife and if you're not granting her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, 
your prayers will be hindered. Some of you men may feel like you get down on your knees to pray to God and your, your prayers are going up to the ceiling and hitting and bouncing right back down. You know what might be the problem? What might be the problem is you're not right with your wife. Relationships make a tremendous difference in our prayer. The horizontal matters. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, I don't care if I'm not right with anybody. Just so I'm right with God. Hey, that's all that matters. No. It does matter. The horizontal does matter. Jesus told a story to Simon Peter in Matthew 18 about the importance of forgiveness. Because Peter wanted to have this bookkeeper's mentality. How many times do I have to forgive somebody who sins against me? And he gets up to 490 if you do all the math there. And it's Jesus saying 491 times that you're, somebody does you wrong. You don't have to forgive anymore. No, his point is unlimited forgiveness. And he tells this story about this, this worker who goes before his master, his king. And he owes a debt to his master that would be simply impossible to pay off. I mean, it's like 20 million bucks because he's mismanaged things that belong to his master. And he pleaded to his master that his master would forgive him, and his master did. And he gets up and he goes out and he sees one of his fellow servants who owes him like $20. You see, that's, that's really the math there. If we were to look at what the what the financial terms are he's just been forgiven 20 million he finds a fellow servant who owes him 20 bucks and he won't forgive him and this friend of his uses the same words in his petition that the guy owing 20 million dollars used against his master and yet he won't forgive his fellow servant even 20 bucks and Jesus said, take that servant. He'll be cast out into outer darkness. We are expected to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven us. Are you the type of person that holds grudges, bears bitterness in your heart towards people, doesn't forgive you don't have to tell me this morning that you don't see answers to your prayers. I know you don't see answers to your prayers because of what the Lord is saying here. And you won't until that's dealt with. People who are petty, full of bitterness, unforgiving, always accusatory, they need to understand what all of that is costing them. Now, when we think about Jesus cursing the fig tree and then casting out the money changers and, and teaching his disciples the meaning of all these things, it's not surprising to see in verses 27 and following that the leaders are not going to take all of this sitting down. They confront Jesus as to his authority. Uh, what, what's, what's your authority, Lord, that you're doing all of this? 
And what we see here is the beginning of seven confrontations that the religious leaders are going to have during Passover week with Jesus leading up to his crucifixion. And folks, this is really not all that surprising given the fact that he's just overturned the tables in the temple. He's messed up their whole money-making thing. It would have been impossible for Jesus to have done what he did on the temple grounds and it not to have caused quite a stir and quite a commotion. So verse 27 says, They came to him, they began asking him by what authority he's doing all these things. Now obviously they think they can trap him. And they think they can get him to admit he's doing all of this on his own authority. Well, which he was because he's God the Son, the Son of God. But they're gonna, they'll accuse him of blasphemy and put him on trial for it. But Jesus doesn't take that bait. Folks, you got to love it. You got to love some of the scenarios that Jesus, when they would try to trap him, some of the things that Jesus would say. Don't you wish you could do that sometime the way Jesus would do things? I think of that time, you know, the, they came to him with, talking about the, the leveret marriage. You know what the leveret marriage is in the Old Testament, right? That if a, a wife, her husband dies and he had a brother, the brother was to marry her to raise up the descendants for the deceased brother. The descendants would be considered the children of the deceased. And, and they come up with this scenario. You know, let's suppose here's a woman that her husband has died and the brother marries her and he dies. And then the, another brother marries her and he dies. And another brother marries her and he dies. And another brother marries her and he dies. In the resurrection, who's going to be her husband? And Jesus says, you don't get it. You don't know the scripture. Because in the resurrection, there's not going to be marrying and giving in marriage. Over and over again, Jesus slipped through their traps. You would think they would have learned by now, but here they go again. And so Jesus turns it around on them. He says, okay, I'll answer you your question, but you've got to first answer me. And he brings up John the Baptist. They, they couldn't say that John was from God because they had been guilty of not listening to John. If they denied John was from God, then they had a public relations nightmare that week of Passover because everybody knew that John was a true prophet. And, and so they just decided it'd be better if they don't even give an answer. So Jesus says, okay, then neither will I answer you. He got them on their gotcha question. Listen, folks, don't think you can outsmart God. Don't think you can outreason Him or have a gotcha moment against God. A lot of people think they know better than God. They throw up stuff to God. It won't work. It won't work. Let the Pharisees be a lesson to you. You can't outsmart God. 
Well, in verses uh, 1 through 12 of the next chapter, chapter 12, Jesus begins to tell a parable. One of the strongest parables of judgment we have anywhere in the New Testament. And when you look at verse 1, you need to see verse 1 in light of passages like Isaiah 5. In Isaiah 5... The Lord speaks of Israel as a vineyard that he had planted. And he had built a wall around his vineyard. He had done everything necessary to protect his vineyard with the expectation that his vineyard would produce good grapes. But in Isaiah 5, God says, but instead of producing good grapes, you've only produced Stink berries, worthless fruit. Well, that's much like this parable here. God had chosen them. They were to be his vineyard, his his orchard, if you will. What had God done for them? He had chosen them. Remember, he told them in the Old Testament, it's not because you were more numerous than other nations or better than them because you weren't. But God chose them. But there's something they didn't understand. He elected them, but election is for service. It's not simply so you keep the blessing for yourself. Yes, it's a blessing to be chosen, but you got to do something with it. Privilege brings responsibility to whom much is given, much is required. Remember what God had also told them in Deuteronomy 8. When he was telling them that they weren't to forget him. If they forgot him and began living like the other nations around them. Then he would judge them just like he would judge the other nations around them. Well what did they do? They forgot God. And over and over again they disobeyed. God sent them judges and then God sent them prophets. And, and they would go right back after that period of time into their old cycles of sin and misery. And then, then they would start mocking the prophets and killing the prophets. And that's what Jesus is speaking of here in chapter 12, the first five verses. That's what they had done to all of the servants of God that God had sent them. All of the prophets God had sent them. They had mistreated and rejected. Why did God send them all those prophets? Because God wanted them to know the truth. And God wanted to call his people to repentance. But each prophet was rejected. Some, you read through the Old Testament, put in jail. Others killed. All kinds of... Terrible things. Every one of those prophets God was sending to his people was nothing short of the grace and mercy of God. The fact that God was sending people, sending servants to his people who were living in disobedience. That was an act of God's mercy, giving them somebody to call them back to God. But they would reject one after the other. They didn't like the message. 
they'd turn on the servant because they didn't like the message. It wasn't to their uh, suiting, to their taste. Well, what's Jesus say here in chapter 12? That the, that the, uh, the vineyard owner, what does he finally do? He says, I'll send my son. Oh, they won't reject him. They'll listen to him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only what? Begotten son. They'd rejected all his prophets. What's God finally do? Send his son. They'll listen to his son, right? No, what'd they do? Nailed him to a cross. Now what's the verdict? God's defeated, right? God's purposes are defeated, right? They've taken on God and won. They've rejected his servants. They've rejected his son. Ha ha, God, we've shown you. Is that right? Nope. What's Jesus say here in this parable? The owner of the vineyard will come and destroy the vine growers. And in 70 AD, that's exactly what happened. The Romans came in and totally wiped out the city and the temple. The point is, God's work isn't defeated. His work isn't defeated. And as he says here, in verse 9, he'll come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. What's that a promise of? The Gentile mission. How the gospel was going to go to the Gentiles. The point is, God's work isn't defeated. He moves on and gives it to others. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon Probably the most famous Baptist preacher ever. Listen to what he said in a sermon on this. Remember, and I quote here, Remember once more that if you do not hear the well-beloved Son of God, you have refused your last hope. He is God's ultimatum. Nothing remains when Christ is refused. No one else can be sent. Heaven itself contains no further message. If Christ is rejected, hope is rejected. I should like every person here that is unconverted to remember that there is no other gospel and no more sacrifice for sin. I have heard talk of a larger hope than the gospel sets before us. It is a fable with nothing in scripture to warrant it. Rejecting Christ, you have rejected all. You have shut against yourself the one door of hope. Christ, who knows better than all pretenders, declares that he who believes not shall be damned. There remains nothing but damnation for those who do not believe in Jesus. End quote. Powerful words. And that's what Christ is telling them here in chapter 12. Verses 10 and 11 speak of a cornerstone. A cornerstone would be set 
and the rest of the building would be tied into that cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone in God's new temple, the church, and it is upon Christ that the prophets and apostles are built. Now think of the arrogance in what the Pharisees and the scribes are doing here. They assume they're builders, but in reality, what are they doing? They're rejecting the cornerstone. And the Bible says you either fall upon the cornerstone and become broken yourself, or it falls upon you and crushes you. To reject him brings his crushing judgment upon you. And that's what they were doing. Verse 12 says, they realized he was speaking these words against them. They finally got something right, didn't they? And what did they want to do? They wanted to seize him and cause him harm. But they feared the people. But you know what? By the end of the week, they would seize him. They would kill him. They'd crucify him. Their rejection was complete. Folks, if God didn't spare his people, do we think he'll spare us? That would be nothing short of an arrogance that would equal theirs. Let me give you some lessons this morning, and I've got a number of them that ties all of these passages together. Believers are to believe God. That should be obvious. Believers are to believe God. Well, how do we know that we have faith? Well, you look back to Hebrews 11 again. Hebrews 11 is that roll call of the faithful. And it shows that they were faithful by what they did in their lives. They believed God and then in their lives they went out and did costly things that demonstrated that they believed God. Does your life demonstrate that you do have faith? Secondly, believers are to persist in prayer. Believers are to persist in prayer. Third, believers are to deal with hindrances in their own spiritual life that affect prayer, such as their attitudes to others, Are there people that you need to forgive and get right with? Fourth, forget thinking that you know better than God. Don't try to reason your way around what he says. God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Fifth, God's grace in saving you and me is amazing. It's amazing. But folks, don't think that privilege doesn't carry responsibility with it. It does. Again, to whom much is given, much is required. And then lastly, repeated disobedience reveals unbelief. And God's judgment against all unbelief will be swift one day. Father, we thank you for these words. They were intended to be hard-hitting words to the religious establishment. And they're hard-hitting words to us. 
God, I pray that we would do today what the leaders then refused to do. They refused to take to heart all of these words, all of these lessons. They refused to repent and come to Christ. But I pray that none here would do that today. That we would listen and come to you. And that in every way, our lives would demonstrate that we have come to you. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand?